This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. While the demands on the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, for mission execution are complex and diverse, the principal operational requirements can be summarized within three distinct and mutually supporting themes. Protect the American people, protect the national economy, and safeguard and manage the U.S. air, land, and maritime borders. How does CBP's Office of Field Operations help meet this mission? What are CBP's key strategic priorities? And how is CBP pursuing innovative security strategies? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. Thanks for having me today. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Don, welcome. Thanks. So, John, would you give us a history and um, a little bit of the mission of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection um, and its Office of Field Operations? Correct. We're the ones at all the um, legal border crossings, the airports, mm-hmm. seaports, land border crossings, uh, you know, 300 plus different uh, ports of entry. We handle all of the customs and immigration and agriculture inspections and a lot of national security work that gets intertwined within those missions. Uh, but we're the uniformed uh, CBP officers at uh, at all of those locations. So how is how is the office organized? And what I'm getting at is, besides the specifics of your budget size, if you can share that with us, the number of agents that are working for, with you, um, what what do you what's the size of the border? What in terms of mileage? What are we looking at? And um, how many folks come to and fro through the borders? So we're a fairly large organization. We have about thirty thousand employees. Uh, about 23,000 are sworn law enforcement officers, CBP officers, uh, a couple thousand agriculture specialists, and you know then um, several other positions um, uh, in different functions that we do. But we, you know we're structured at all the ports of entry around oh. around the country, um, and actually around the world now too. With you know our preclearance locations, some of the overseas work that we get into, we're in countries all across the. The globe now, so it's not really just confined to the physical United States, but through our partnerships and liaisons and agreements with other countries, really we have a, a worldwide presence. Uh, as far as volume, you know, staggering amount of workload every day. You know, over a million people come into the United States every day. Wow, every day. Yeah. You know, seventy thousand cargo containers. Um, you know, staggering amount of enforcement work uh, that goes on with that. Um, you know, the collections that we do, the trade work that we get involved in, really complex uh, environment 
you know, between the, you know, your agriculture mission, your your national security mission, your immigration mission, your traditional customs mission, uh, the trade and revenue things that we get involved in. Um, very, very complex uh, work environment. Yeah. And, and I guess to that point, a lot of people don't know how how diverse uh, Customs and Border Protection is and the different missions that we serve. You as Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner of uh, the Office of Field Ops, can you talk a little bit about what that means and what the Office of Field Operations is in, in comparison to kind of the rest of the CBP enterprise? So I'm the number two person within the Office of Field Operations. So I support the Executive Assistant Commissioner. So I'm his deputy. Uh, and, you know, then under me, there's a whole uh, organizational structure which leads out into regional field offices and then ports of entry level and then workstation levels and, you know, cascading downward. Um, and then we're structured again at all the, the ports of entry around the country. Um, you know, we're half of the organization of CBP, um, you know, the, the Office of Border Patrol. U.S. Border Patrol is, you know, the other big half. And then we have, um, you know, the Office of Air and Marine and we have the Office of Trade and then all sorts of other type of support offices and other smaller operational offices within those. So, John, you know, when you think about your uh, responsibilities as the Deputy uh, Executive Assistant Commissioner of Field Operations, what are some of the key management challenges you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? I think it's, you know, um, you know, no different than a lot of large organizations. Sure. You know, it's it's increasing workloads with, you know, available resources to do that and available technology to do that. And it's, you know, not just keeping up with the pace of the growth, which is a good thing, but, you know, trying to get ahead of that and trying to forecast out how do we get ahead of this? What are the challenges that are coming at us? You know, what are today's risks we still need to address? And are we addressing them best? Are our resources aligned to the different risks and threats that we're facing? Uh, is our technology up to date? And is it functioning the way we need it to function to support what we have to do? Uh, and then all the administrative work that goes on. Are we hiring the right people? Do we have enough people hired? Do we have them distributed correctly where the workload is? Uh, and then, you know, right down to the tactical operational level, you know, looking at the enforcement work that we do. Uh, the national security work. Uh, are we, you know, uh, are we focusing on the right threats and the emerging threats and the known threats? Are we focusing on the right people that give us concerns about their travel? Uh, are we addressing them in, in the right manners? You know, what else can we be doing? What are the gaps? Uh, so it's it's really you know, and then you know, you look at the, the drug smuggling, narcotic smuggling, uh, you know, the, the cartel movement of of narcotics. Um, you know, are we focused on the right, you know, challenges that are out there? Because, you know, like we mentioned, very diverse mission, mm -hmm. right? You know, are we covering all of the important things adequately and balancing enough without, you know, the biggest thing, or without grinding lawful trade and travel to a halt, yes. right? So it's doing all this work within that with, and we think if we do that properly, you know, it, it actually accelerates travel. And it accelerates the movement of cargo across the border and good, smart law enforcement work done within those confines will speed that those transactions up. You said a million people traveling across the into the United States a day and 70,000 containers. I mean, that's that's a lot of a lot of movement of goods and people. And you've had a nice distinguished career. What, what surprised you the most um, throughout your career? all that kind of movement of people. <laughs> well, I've been fortunate to work in a, in, a, in a several different environments. You know, I started in New York City at the World Trade Center, um, you know, 1991. 
in the in the good old customer service custom service uh you know before the merger and homeland security and the, and the terrorist attacks and you know, i worked around the new york city and newark area and then uh, i took a temporary detail to laredo texas and ended up staying you know at the land border and had a, a, a an absolute wonderful time you know working on the land border and the the, the challenges and the really the the fun interesting things you, yeah. you get involved with there and then to Washington around 1999, so worked on, you know, a lot of different policy, operational issues. You know, worked through the whole merger of customs and immigration and agriculture, and the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, you know, seen the, you know, the the attacks and the attempts that happened afterwards, and how we're able to react. You know, right up into you know today's current environment and 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 all the things happening. But you know, it's it's been really interesting, and I know more interesting times to come. So. You know, we're fully charged up and, and, and ready to go. So, you know, um, John, given your background and, and the evolution in your current leadership role, what makes one an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate um, how you've been such a leader. Um, there's a couple of parts of that. I think at a basic level, it's, you know, as simple as being the leader you want to work for and asking yourself that tough question every day. Would I want to work for myself? <laughs> right. And what do we look for in a leader? You know, and am I consistently providing that, you know, to my subordinates, to my colleagues, to my superiors? You know, am I demonstrating that day in and day out? And there's all different facets that go on with that. But it's, you know, it's 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 also building out that vision for the future, building a pathway to it, explaining that, um, day in and day out to all the people that also need to understand that to get things done. You know, we like to pride ourselves in the Office of Field Operations that, you know, to, to quote uh, Commissioner McAleenan, we're relentlessly self-critical. You know, we're we're not about sitting around defending the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always about what's next, where are we going, how do we do things better? And, you know, what can we be doing more of and next? Um, so as a leader, you want to build those visions. You want to define that and define that future and build reasonable plans uh, to, to actually accomplish that and then see it through the workforce that are we actively moving towards these things. And then, of course, you know, developing your staff and, and, and the workforce to also build towards that vision, mm -hmm. right? We just don't want to stagnate, right? The world's changing. We change with it. We're aggressively trying to be ahead of that and really building that culture into our environment. What are CBP's key strategic priorities? We'll ask John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations at CBP, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. 
These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. John, would you briefly highlight uh, the key strategic priorities and goals of the uh, CBP's Office of Field Operations? Um, How do you seek uh, to achieve these goals? It's, you know, continuing to um, define better ways to, you know, efficiently and most importantly, securely, you know, move cargo and enable people to move, you know, lawfully in and out of the country. Um, You know, we see um, quite clearly our role in in supporting that, you know, supporting the growth of the economy. Um, You know, we take that very seriously. And, you know, as we implement you know, enforcement measures to take care of the, the law enforcement and national security work that we do. Again, it's weaving those into how we also improving the processes. You know, we don't see these as opposing goals. You know, we really see this weaved as, as one single goal that good enforcement and good security is good facilitation and vice versa. And you ne- don't necessarily need to sacrifice one for the other. Um, so, it's, you know, it's, it's really building that into your day-to-day operations, building that into your strategic visions, you know, thinking about how we improve processes and technology really to help us enable that goal. And then, you know, develop our workforce. You know, we have a large workforce. We're spread out around the country, around the world. Uh, how do you communicate with them effectively and timely? You know, what does the workforce need? You know, what, what do they want to learn about and grow and you know, how do we feed them the information that they need to excel at their jobs? How do we equip them? How do we get them the right technology that's that's helping them do their job instead of the other way around? Sure. Right. You know, so, um, you know, it's 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 developing that workforce and building the next leaders out there. You know, we're not going to be around forever. Uh, how do we build those next leaders to take our places? And, you know, how do we continue to 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 develop that? So, you know, uh, as a follow-up, what are some of the uh, sort of um, internal challenges and, and external pressures that uh, have shaped and informed where you're focusing your resources and your strategy? Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of just growing workloads, okay. uh, changing workloads, okay. uh, different threat environments. Um, and as threats, while they're somewhat consistent, they also change and morph in different types of threats. Uh, and then covering that broad spectrum of threats, everything from, you know, the 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 agriculture mission, the agriculture concerns, uh, immigration-related issues, admissibility-related issues, to traditional customs violations, to trade and revenue functions, to narcotics, to national security, right? And it's trying to balance all those, and 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 build all that. And how do we adjust to? You know, do, are we recognizing the changes, mm-hmm. right? And are we able to adapt to them? You know, case in point right now is, you know, the, the just this this emergence of um, e-commerce. Sure. And, you know, how we're now inundated with, um, you know, small packages in the postal environment. 
and are, you know, over the years, we've been able to build up systems that rely on advanced information. And through programs like CTPAT, mm -hmm. we can leverage good business practices of our stakeholders, our partners in this, right? But when you start to go to a, you know, just person-to-person -person transaction, you know, we're not able to leverage a lot of those capabilities. And we got to think differently about it. So how do we address that? You know, everything from the counterfeiting to dangerous products to fentanyl and other drugs and other things moving through this different environment now. And we've got to be able to, to figure that out and meet that challenge. It's daunting and a lot to manage, that's for sure. Uh, finding that balance between facilitating trade and ensuring security is really essential. And it's, it's that balance that, that, that we're all seeking, I guess, and uh, keep us all safe, but keep us uh, traveling effectively. Uh, would you tell us kind of more about the ongoing efforts in the Southwest border enforcement and what's being done to improve the Southwest border security? Maybe just talk about some some accomplishments you've had and you know some of the big challenges that are out there. I think the biggest the biggest enhancements we've made um, over the years, you know, I worked on the, the Southwest land border a long time ago. You know, the only technology we really had was a drill <laughs> and a hammer. And we'd knock on things and drill things all day long, you know. Um, you know, but, you know, I look at the systems now, the, the, the imaging systems that we've been able to, you know, design and develop and deploy and our ability to scan a vehicle or scan a truck or a train as it's moving um, and allow, you know, to image the entire contents of a, a tractor trailer and how our officers are getting really good at becoming like radiologists and reading those scans and pointing out what doesn't belong on those complicated scans. Really, it's, it's an incredible <laughs> talent and skill that, you know, they, they develop in doing this. Um, and, you know, what's next for those systems? And I think as we're contemplating uh, advances in those systems that will allow us to um, almost combine systems and do a combination of high energy and low energy so cars or trucks could drive right through without actually having to stop and the driver get out uh, and then we scan the truck and the driver gets back in and, you know, um, the, the time and the resources involved with doing that. So the new systems, you know, I think that could dramatically change our enforcement posture if we can develop these. And this is kind of which is what we're working on now. You know, if you look at could you actually screen and scan 100 yeah. percent of the trucks coming in? You know, we do the trains, right? right? The train just moves through. Uh, but because we have the driver in the truck, we have to build a different system to right. do that. Um, and, you know, how does that change now, the, the process of importing cargo? And if we couple that with the work we're doing with facial recognition, because we know the drivers are, and if we can couple that to speed up and automate a lot of those transactions, um, it's really looking at some exciting developments, I think, you know, over the next year or two or three in, in how goods and people cross the border, mm -hmm. you know, doing that, so... I guess as a, as a follow-up, uh, the, the southwest border and the northern borders, coastal borders are all fairly unique. Can you tell a little bit about some of the, the things you're seeing that may be different from the, on the northern border and the coastal borders that you know, maybe you're not seeing on the southwest border that you know, some improvements are making there? Yeah, I think uh, you're right. I mean, the different environments have their different and unique threats. Uh, of course, you know, we're, we're always ready because the smugglers and the bad guys also know this, right? And they, they'll try different techniques and different ways to get things through us in different locations, thinking we would not, we might not be onto that. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, a matter of being prepared for all of those different 
those different issues as they come at us. But, you know, you do see things that, you know, the, the southwest border, you know, we have the, uh, you know, the migrant populations moving, coming and claiming asylum. You know, we have the constant narcotics threat, the alien smuggling. Um, you know, these are the traditional missions at the southwest border. Those have been a constant over the years. Um, northern border, not quite so much on the narcotics front, um, but, you know, different types of, of activity and enforcement work that we'll do there. Uh, same thing with the seaports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the seaports, you know, with the cruise ships and with the cargo vessels, a little different environment than the land borders because we can prepare using the advanced information we get. And we can scrub through that and screen that information well in advance of it actually getting here. Uh, land borders, especially with people, you really don't have a lot of advanced information who's coming and going to cross that line and, and show up. So it's, it's, it's a different environment. There's some real-time analytics that we apply to that to help us draw connections between things. Uh, but it's, it's a little more, um, you know, a little bit different of an environment and an adjustment. And the element of, you know, the, the, the threats, the physical threats. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see a lot of that on the southern border, but also on the northern border. You know, at an airport, people come off a screened aircraft. Right. You know, they've gone through a level of security screening. Um, but, of course, airports also are magnets for a lot of disturbing violence. You know, we've seen the shootings in the United States. Right. We've seen the shootings and bombings around the world. Um, so it's a different threat. But at the land border, no one's been security screened. Yeah. Right. So it's you're out there in the public and, you know, having to also be cognizant of that. Um, so it's it's, you know, similar threats, different being prepared for all of it is really where, yeah. where we need to be. And uh, CBP uses a risk segmentation or segmenting of traffic, cargo shipper and traveler as an essential tool to effectively target potential threats. Can we focus a little bit on your your efforts, <clears throat> your office's efforts around cargo security, supply chain security? Can you elaborate on CBP's multi-layered cargo enforcement strategy, and how do things like CTPAT fit into that? True, we've you know we've used this the the principles of risk management for many years, and again, that's adjusting to increasing volumes of work, mm-hmm. trying to get smarter in how you do things. You know, what are the things that we can physically check that's going to give us the Best percentage of catching something, right? Considering all the different threats that we have. But, you know, what's the most productive work to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not busy work or work just for the sake of making work. You know, it's really what is the most productive things? What do we know about things in advance that we can, say, clear away from the pile mm-hmm. and focus on a smaller set of, of cargo or people coming at us? Uh, so that's where we use the advanced information, mm-hmm. you know, the manifest, the information, what's coming. Who's bringing it in? Where it's made? Who's it connected to? How often does this come? All the different pieces of that. And then how do we take that data and also then link it to other pieces of law enforcement information or intelligence information that we can link it to and look at, you know, what risk does this present, right? And if it's a significant enough risk, how far in advance and away from the U.S. can we actually have that concern addressed? And that's the key where programs like the Container Security Initiative come into place. We have officers stationed overseas and the ability to have cargo screened before it's put on the ship Mm -hmm. to come over this way. 
um, you know, how far in advance working with our foreign partners uh, can we address these concerns as early on in the supply chain, which takes us back to CTPAC. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do we leverage, again, the good business um, practices of, of, of companies and importers and exporters and manufacturers? And how do we leverage that? And how do we help them as they help us um, to reduce risk in their supply chain? Might have a great product, easy product, low risk, but the, in the course of being transported to the U.S., you know, where are the risk elements to get it out of that country onto a ship and into the U.S.? How many different opportunities are there to compromise that? You know, so how do we lock in the assurances with these companies who also have an interest in this mm -hmm. as well? And it's mutual interest again, right? Uh, how do we how do we lock those things down, reduce that risk so we can expedite that cargo when it arrives? And I think you talked a little bit, you know, about the, the Container Security Initiative or CSI and we know that you maintain robust inspection regimes at all your all your ports of entry. Uh, can you talk a little bit about CSI and how how you know CBP intertwines with with ICE to kind of accomplish your mission? You know, how do you guys work together? So overseas, you know, we we have a small footprint around the world, um, and when I say small, it's just a handful of officers in 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 different countries. So we rely on partnerships, right? And it's going to be with our U.S. government partners between the embassy, ICE, FBI, DEA, uh, and others, uh, and our foreign partners, our hosts in the country, the foreign customs authorities, the foreign border police, um, you know, the foreign intelligence uh, communities. You know, how do we leverage all that, you know, use the old force multiplier mm -hmm. effect to be able to leverage that, again, to use our tools and the analysis and the information that we have access to to be able to address any concerns that we have as early on in that that process. And that's where we have to work closely with the stakeholders, the foreign partners, because on their soil a lot of times. Yeah. And we'll have to work through their cooperation to have that threat addressed. But again, they've got a mutual interest in right. it as well, too. So it's a matter of, um, you know, working jointly to be able to, to address that. So, John, what is the future direction uh, for scanning cargo here and abroad? It's to continue to refine those, those relationships mm -hmm. and that technology and those analytical tools to be able to effectively do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, 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 you know, looking at the intelligence, you know, breaking that intelligence down, breaking the law enforcement work down into what presents a risk to us and what's the best way to inspect that or have that risk addressed. Sometimes it'll be here in the US, a lot of times it's gonna be overseas still, depending on the nature of the threat and what relationships we have to be able to address it. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the non-intrusive inspection or the uh, radiation technology that you, you're employed, you've employed? And what lessons, where I wanna go with this is what lessons have you learned since the, the beginning of this uh, technology? We've seen the systems get better, stronger and quicker to use. And that's, you know, really the, I think some of the big benefits that we can see from that itself. The other piece of that is the remote viewing of the images, mm. right? So instead of standing in front of the physical machine and reading the scans off, we're building out ways to have those images sent elsewhere where we can consolidate the images or have them read at a different site. Mm. 
you know, because it's um, it's more efficient to do it that way. So we'll be looking to build some of those systems out too. Okay. Uh, we have some in place now, but really trying to leverage some of the, the, the key pieces of that. How is CBP pursuing innovative enforcement strategies? We'll ask John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, the Office of Field Operations within CBP, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, uh, John, um, would you tell us more about the roles of the National Targeting Center and the Automated Targeting Center and what they play in your efforts? And what are you doing to enhance them and derive some uh, benefit uh, from the intelligence that these two uh, technologies and efforts provide? Yeah, this is um, you know a center that we have built up over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, it started as a handful of officers, actually were inspectors back then, uh, pre-merger days uh, after the attacks of September 11th. Mm-hmm. And you know, in a building, in a room at the Ronald Reagan building, the mm-hmm. customs headquarters, okay. you know, just a handful of people answering the phone and providing enhanced support to the officers out there at the ports of entry. Um, That these officers had access to run additional queries, deeper queries, access additional databases that they just didn't have in the field. And we can start to consolidate that. Um, And over time, we've built that out into this incredible analytical and field support um, uh, process, you know, where we have all um, pretty in-depth analytical capabilities and systems to send all of our advanced information in, set conditions to triage out information we're looking for, run that against known law enforcement information, known intelligence reports, and use systems like the advanced targeting system to be able to manage that data and send that back out to the ports of entry to say, you know, these are the highest risk people or cargo you know, coming in or leaving the United States today. And it's really the, the central point for the, um, all of that analytical work that gets done. And then it's also a resource when the officers out there um, come across something, they have a centralized place to call that can do the deeper analytics, the deeper data connections, the bridges to the intelligence communities, classified information, and get more into the in-depth um, uh, mechanics 
of some of those processes. So it's, it's you know, we're very proud of, of that center and how it's grown over the years. Um, you know, it, it, it started out looking at just people and travelers, and we've built a whole you know, cargo mission out of it for commercial cargo. Um, and how really it has grown over the years into the expanding into not only the partnerships with the U.S. law enforcement and the U.S. intelligence communities, but the foreign partnerships as well, too. It's really just an incredible asset that we have, you know, slowly but deliberately built over the years. Uh, but it's absolutely critical to the risk management approach and how we, you know, conduct inspections and an analysis to determine what's what's harmful and what's good. So on, on a typical day, CBP welcomes to the U.S. more than 300,000 international travelers at the nation's airports. I'd like to explore a little bit about CBP's pre-departure safeguards. Can you talk a little bit about some of the safeguards that are in place today? And, you know, what other programs do the CBP's pre-departure vetting efforts work in concert with today? So over the years, we've, you know, built out and added different pieces to that pre, you know, pre-arrival and then pre-departure analysis. And, you know, it starts with, you know, working closely with our partners in the Department of State mm-hmm. and the visa issuance process and our partners in ICE in how some of this data is reviewed in, in certain countries and building tools and systems to share information and you know, do reviews of, of um, you know, the visa issuance process. And then for our visa waiver travelers, uh, building an automated system for visa waiver travelers to send us information, goes through a similar level of review, say, as a, a visa itself, uh, as far as the different vetting databases and how we adjudicate them. Um, but it's, again, through our National Targeting Center, having the ability to synthesize this information you know, run it against, you know, known law enforcement information, intelligence information, and then start to ferret out who we have questions about. And then how do you address those questions? And again, as far in advance as possible. So is it a time of visa issuance or visa waiver travel approval issuance? Um, Or is it further along in the process when a person actually makes a reservation and they book a flight to come to the U.S.? and they actually check in for the flight. And the airlines provide us different sets of information uh, at different points in that travel. Um, And if there's questions or concerns, we have officers overseas that can address some of them, or we work closely with um, our foreign partners in government and in the airlines, you know, to be able to do that. Sometimes it involves, uh, you know, asking the airline to refer the person back to the U.S. Embassy overseas because we have additional questions. Sometimes it's one of our officers interviewing the traveler and, again, making a recommendation to the airline whether or not um, this person would be admissible to the United States. So it's pulling together all these different pieces that were out there mm-hmm. and stringing them together into, you know, really one, one process where, again, CBP and the stakeholders all have a common interest here. Mm-hmm. And it's really aligning those into, all right, how do we move the good people faster? Right. And how do we get the, the, those people we have questions about out of out of that process and address those questions? And we all have this similar goals here to be able to do that. So that's really how these programs are, yeah. are built. And you you talked about this in terms of lo- uh, you know, having a global footprint. But how does CBP use overseas enforcement capabilities and partnerships to extend the country's zone of security? A couple of different ways. One is just through the information and calling the airline directly. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, saying we have questions about this person, you know, can they, how do we address them? Other programs we have, we have officers stationed at a handful of airports overseas, uh, some embedded with the foreign border authorities, the border police or the immigration or customs authorities. Uh, and they work alongside them, you know, looking at travelers headed to the United States. And again, that would be more of an, in an advisory role sure. with, you know, we're on foreign soil, no real authorities to do any type of inspections or law enforcement work there up to and including our pre-clearance locations where we have officers in uniform stationed overseas all over Canada all of the Caribbean um, you know a couple places in Ireland and our, our latest place was Abu Dhabi that we had opened up um, and we're, we're working on a lot of expansion of this program but that's we're uniformed officers on foreign soil operating under a very specific agreement that's been carved out with the host government on what we can and can't do uh, at the airport to, to, to do that. Um, but there we operating under those authorities, but again, it's with the permission of that host country, and that's what we've been negotiating through you know, to be able to do that. But that's probably our strongest presence, because sure. we're actually there on site and can do this kind of work. You talked about the use of advanced information and targeting as key elements of your multi-layered security strategy to address, address concerns long before they reach the physical border of the United States. Can you help us understand a little bit about what's actually happening upon arrival processing? What are what are what are the passengers dealing with? So we analyze uh, that information, you know, in advance. Um, we we talked about how we uh, can address any questions we have in advance. So when a person arrives in the U.S., um, the interaction with the CBP officer, the first thing we do is is look up the information we already have on that person. Right, because the airlines provided us the manifesto who's on board. We've done a lot of analytics against that. So we refer to our computer system and say, do we have any questions based on our pre-arrival analysis that has not already been addressed? Right. Um, then we have to validate the identity of the person. Some travelers, non-US citizens, will be subject to a collection of biometrics mm-hmm. to ensure this is the person State Department issued the visa to, or this is the person we saw last time. Um, and running a host of you know, law enforcement database queries against that person you know, as they're there. To, to, really to build on top of the pre-arrival analytics that is on. Then it's the traditional customs and um, immigration and agriculture inspection missions. If it's a foreign visitor, it's asking those questions to help us determine, do you intend to comply with the terms of this visa or the submission? And is there any reason we would question you know, what you're telling us as to why you're coming to the United States. Um, uh, the, the, the customs questions, items you're declaring, do you owe any duty? Are there any harmful products, any illegal products? Um, so we ask questions about the purpose and the intent of travel, either in the United States or uh, for a, a citizen or resident when they went abroad. And it's really doing that risk analysis. Same thing with the agriculture. So you got any agriculture products that would give us concern and need to be inspected by the agriculture specialist. So it's the summation of all that. Yeah. And the officer has a couple minutes to make that determination. You know, do we admit the person to the U.S.? Do we subject them to further inspection? Do we deny them entry? Do their bags get searched? It, but all the combination of all those factors all pulled together. And how do you do, I mean, I know it's it's judgment, it's it's training, and my next question is going to be around training, one of my next questions. But what I'm getting at is how do you bolster decision-making and leverage the power of analytics to sort of inform a decision-making in the front line? 
So how are you using analytics to do this? That's where the national targeting center okay, comes so in. And then ensuring that our frontline workforce understands those capabilities and most importantly has confidence in, them. in right. those capabilities. So they don't necessarily need to redo that work on site. Okay. You know, in the old days we used to look at a plane ticket. You yeah. know, people had paper tickets and we look, okay, how did you pay for this? Who else are you traveling with? And we'd, you know, we'd ask all these questions manually on site. Who are you traveling with? Who paid for your ticket? You know, where are you flying from? Now we can just run a report through the, the information we have. So give me everybody that paid cash for a ticket on this date, on this route of this age. And we can start to call down the information to start to identify, okay, who do we need to ask different questions mm -hmm. of? And, you know, building that support into our workforce so they can leverage that. And they have the confidence in that, that then they can use the technology, you know, the biometric work, the biometric systems, the additional database queries that come. And then really it's their intuition about determining a person's intent of mm -hmm. travel. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, right? But that's why we have human beings and officers on site asking that question, where did you go and why? You know, and why are you, why are you visiting the United States today? Why did you go overseas to, you know, that country? How long were you there? Because we're trying to determine that intent, again, to make that assessment to say, does this person need further inspection? Yeah. So how... You know, give, could you give us an insight into how you train that that agent to do it? And and what I'm getting at is, what kind of training? You have so many missions. Uh, I mean, you, you you're one mistake away from a serious issue happening. What kind of training goes into doing this? Uh, it's when they first get hired. It's yeah, it's 19 hired. weeks at the CBP Officer Academy uh, down in uh, in in Fletzi in Georgia. Uh, and it covers a broad range of authorities and policies and techniques, um, you know, about the uniqueness of the border, the authorities mm -hmm. at the border, the protocols at the border, um, and, and making sure they have that base foundation of understanding of, you know, w what they're authorized to do and required to do. And then it's building the techniques on top of that and then learning the technology and the tools that are available to them to make that assessment. Uh, as well as, you know, hands-on practical um, uh, situations and scenarios, um, you know, to go through with trying to determine, again, that person's intent, looking at the behavioral mannerisms of, of a person when you're talking to them and how they respond to the question is sometimes as important as what they say. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a lot of uh, law enforcement training as well as far as self-defense, uh, firearms, uh, safe handling of firearms, uh, qualifications, some of the intermediary force weapons that we have, how to properly use them, what the policies are around using them, when to use deadly force, when not to, um, you know, th th that type of just traditional law enforcement training and then physical fitness training as well too. As a, as a follow-up to that, sure. I think in the, the training of the, the new workforce that you have coming in, you know, it's got to always evolve. Are you seeing challenges around, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the work that you do is based on interpersonal skills and face-to-face <laughs> -face talking. And are you seeing it harder to tra train today's workforce, yeah. you know, that's so used to just staring at their cell phones and things I, like that? I don't think, we haven't really seen that yet. We do have, you know, still a little bit older of a workforce, you know, and we do have very strict requirements you know, about who gets hired. Uh, and they have to be strict. You know, there's just so much responsibility 
on a CBP officer and the consequences, like you mentioned, of making the wrong decision. There are significant consequences. So we have to make sure we've got, you know, really, really good employees and that we've screened them very carefully to do this. So then, you know, the 19 weeks of training is really top notch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we see is people come out of that academy fully prepared and ready to go. Now there's a whole on the job training, we call it post academy, that goes on for months. You know, back at your port of entry, your work site, to really learn the, the hands-on type uh, of the job. But you're right, it's a lot of interpersonal skills, it's a lot of communication, it's a lot of recognizing those signs. And you know, the, the technology can't replace what the human being officer, like I mentioned earlier, right. you know, determining a person's intent. And that's asking the right questions and listening carefully to the answers and you know, making that assessment. Does this make sense? Do I have any further questions about this person's intent? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's um, it, we need to make sure we're staying, you know, on the forefront of the, the communication piece that's essential to this. What is CBP's information sharing strategy? We'll ask John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations at CBP, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, you know, John, we've talked a lot about um, the use of CBP using partnerships and and collaboration to achieve its mission. Um, what I'm getting, what I would like to talk about a little bit is how does CBP manage the sharing of information um, amongst uh, and intelligence amongst the other components of DHS as well as maybe state and local tribal areas or the international community? How are you doing that? So a couple of different ways that would take place. Um, some are formal MOUs, mm-hmm. some are task forces, you know, joint work groups, uh, you know, that we're an integral part of. You know, we, we sit in interesting mission space in CBP um, because of the unique authorities uh, at the border um, and the volume of information that we have access to. Um, we really serve as that, in a lot of times, that central hub for putting all those pieces together and taking the bits of intelligence, the bits of the law enforcement information that's out there, the technology, and fusing it all together and because of that uniqueness, again, at the border, 
uh, and the information we can gain from you know a, an inspection of a person or a, or a piece of cargo, uh, we can really fill in a lot of the blanks for people, and we can pull a lot of these you know sh- data and structure it together and serve really as that foundation then to share it back out, authorities permitting, right, with the relevant um, either stakeholders or law enforcement partners that are out there. And then making sure we have the agreements in place sure. that we're sharing things appropriately. Yeah, right. Exactly. So all kinds of structure around privacy and, and everything. maintaining the privacy, right? Because, you know, it's an important point that we deal with very sensitive information and we have for many years on the commercial side and on the personal side. Uh, and, you know, we have to make sure we maintain the, the public's trust and confidence in not misusing that information. And that's a really fine line. So we have a lot of, of structure and accountability around access to that information and then sharing it to make sure people have a authorized need to know that information. Right. Well, you guys have uh, come a long way, I guess. We started out talking about screwdrivers and hammers and uh, <laughs> we have sign cutting techniques that have been going on for decades. Now you have NAI machines and all kinds of great technology, the big analytics uh, center, the National Targeting Center. So what, out of all the stuff that you see emerging, you know, I think it's always going to be man and machine, but, you know, man making a lot of decisions. But what are the big emerging technologies that hold the most promise for you, improving uh, the work you guys do? So we see um, facial recognition really is the next big driver of, of change for us. And, you know, we've got some really ambitious plans to transform um, the entire international travel experience, inbound and outbound, by by leveraging the advances in facial recognition. Um, you know, it's helping us answer a long-standing congressional requirement to take biometrics of departing visitors. Um, you know, in the airport environment, there's no dedicated departure zones for international flights, unlike other countries, mm-hmm. where you go through an immigration or customs or border police inspection to leave that country. We, never, we don't have those controls in the U.S., Yes, we have authorities to check departing visitors, but every single person is not required to go through an inspection to depart the United States. So airports aren't set up that way. Mm -hmm. So how do you inject a biometric collection into that process for only a segment of all the travelers that are there, right? You're commingled with domestic travelers, Mm -hmm. and then you're commingled with American citizens and, and, and people outside the scope of the biometric collection requirement. So... You know, DHS worked on various pilots over the years, um, you know, and really couldn't find that magic formula to figure out how to really do this without creating gridlock and confusion at the airports. Um, We took, CBP took this mission over, it was about 2013. And I think we, you know, defined the problem a little differently. And we looked at it a little differently that said, you know, the typical easy government approach is, right, we get a mandate, okay, let's make up a rule, let's publish it, let's buy technology, <laughs> nail to the floor, and make people go through it. And add yet another gauntlet uh, of, of a process to getting, you know, from your car onto that plane. And you think about all the things you already have to go through at the airport. And we're going to inject another one and a confusing one because it doesn't apply to everyone consistently. Yeah. So when we looked at it that and we said, you know, okay, well, we already have a lot of information on people departing. We already have the biographic data. We can already run the fingerprints of the foreign visitors in advance because we saved them and collected them when they came in. So 
the biometric collection, and when I say we thought about it differently, you know, previous looks at this said you have to collect a biometric and run the, the queries in real time and adjudicate the results in real time. And I said, well, that's not really the case because we've already done that through the airline manifest that they've provided to us. And we've run and have the ability to run the fingerprints in advance because they were saved, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the value of the biometric now isn't really to run enforcement queries in real time. It becomes to validate the information the airline gave us mm -hmm. and the person we vetted is the person we think it is. Right. So we look at it that way. So, okay, well, what's the easiest biometric then to collect on somebody? Mm -hmm. One consistently across the board and one that would comport, really... Uh, work in conjunction with the airline business model so we have as minimal change as possible to traveler behaviors, expectations, and the airline business models, right? And that's where we settled on facial recognition. And it's as simple as putting a camera at the boarding area and take people's pictures as they board the aircraft. U.S. citizens are included in this because we also have the responsibility to make sure, A, a person is a U.S. citizen and that they have a passport and it belongs to them. And because we have the passport photos electronically, all we're doing is comparing that live image against that passport photo. That's all. And when it matches, it gets discarded because we're not, we're not saving that. So then being able to work with the stakeholders and a couple of the airlines to say, wait, if we can do this at boarding, can we integrate this into your boarding process? And can we replace the boarding pass now with just a picture? So we've been working with Delta and JetBlue and LAX and Orlando and Miami and Atlanta, a lot of locations to, to try this out. And rather than presenting your boarding pass to the airline and your passport to get on board the plane, you just take a picture. The picture comes to us. We validate it, send a message back to the airline. Green light comes on, you board the plane in like two to 30 seconds. So when we can able to confirm a person's identity and validate the airline data, which validates our vetting, collection of the biometrics for that subset of the people, when we can do that without having to read a token, mm -hmm. a passport, a boarding pass, uh, you know, some other form of something, right? How does that change the dynamics of air travel? At any place you have to stop and show a token, could you just replace with a camera that pings our, our database? And two to three seconds, you'll get a response back. So you think, could you automate the process getting again from your car onto the plane? And then when you come back home from overseas, the same thing applies that we can, we can expedite the whole inspection process by taking a picture because the data has all been queued up and run in advance. And we point back to that information by taking the picture and not necessarily fingerprinting foreign visitors every time again. First time, yes. First time we see them, yes. But after that, prints are in the system. Right. If you can connect them to the face a lot quicker, a lot easier. So we're really looking at tremendous efficiencies and security in building this out. But the key, the, the key, the magic formula here is working it through the stakeholders. You know, I, I plead with them. I said, don't let us build this alone in a stovepipe Right. Uh, you know, approach. Don't demand that we not do that and integrate it into the airline and airport, you know, business models. So we're actually improving, you know, the entire experience. Because again, it does us no good to shove everybody out of the customs hall and then they back up at the next step in the process, right? But could we build in the U.S. a very seamless process that's easy for people to understand, makes sense, and is consistent? Because what we also face is everybody moving out in their own direction and one 
group is doing fingerprints, another group is doing face, another is a piece of paper, and the other is a, a passport, will make travel even more confusing. So we have an opportunity now to leverage this system across the board. And it's got application on the land border too, which we're experimenting with. But uh, we really see this as transforming uh, how we conduct operations because the front end, the camera technology is getting so good and flexible, right? Right now we're in a desktop in a booth, right? And it's hardwired into our database. Well, now we can look at tablets and phones and watches and wearables you know, body-worn cameras and feeding into this facial recognition system that frees up the CBP officer now to do a lot more flexible work environment on how and where and how we conduct our inspections. And still capture it. Yeah. Right. Still capture it and still have the basis around that human interaction with the officer determining intent, but leveraging that technology to free us up from that, you know, overly prescriptive rote repetitive administrative process of, of, you know, how we tend to fall into things over time and really undo all that. So we're pretty charged up about the, the, the potential, what this holds, uh, if we can integrate this properly into uh, really with the stakeholders. One last question before I let you go today, um, really quickly. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Uh, I would highly recommend you consider CBP for employment. Uh, as a CBP officer, uh, we have a need for many officers right now. We have a lot of vacancies out there. We are actively hiring. Um, the requirements are strict, but the you know the pay and the benefits are, are incredible. Um, you know they are consistent with other federal, state, and law enforcement uh, positions. But the experience, I think, of what we have to offer in that world because of our worldwide reach and the you know, the breadth of the mission we talked about earlier, the different work environments that you can experience in your, you know, your 20, 25 year career. I think we offer a lot of opportunity in a unique law enforcement national security function with a lot of cutting edge, uh, you know, technology to support that, you know, a big organization. So the pay, the benefits are good. And really we, we the, the work experience and the diversity of the opportunities really are, are, are incredible these days. Great. Thanks, John, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with John Wagner, Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Field Operations within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. My co-host from IBM has been Don Penhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.